I'm Margaret Mueller, President and CEO of the Executives Club of Chicago, Chicago region's top business forum. Join me on the Executives Exchange as we go deep with some of the most successful executives from the Chicago region and unlock the keys to their success. Trust me, you're going to want to hear this. On this episode of the Executives Exchange, I sit down with Chandra Brown, CEO of MXD, who discusses her experiences as a woman who has been a leader and transformer in the supply chain and manufacturing sectors. Tune in to hear about Chandra's lessons learned moving through her career, including during her tenure as the U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of Manufacturing, reshoring opportunities and increasing diversity in the field. Chandra, hi, I'm so glad you're here. It's so good to be here with you. I've been looking forward to this for a month now. I can't wait. I know. I know. Inside secret, Chandra and I are also friends. So we're colleagues, but also friends. <laughs> and so really excited to have this conversation. Um, we should just record some of our drinks conversations. That might be more fun. Oh, I think that we would really give some insight to the folks listening. <laughs> <laughs> so there's so much I want to cover. Let's get into it. So let's start from the beginning a little bit. I know that growing up, you know, you were really exposed to an extended family that worked in the trades, plumbers, electricians, other tradespeople. Your parents themselves were not in the trades and you have credited your business skills and your ability to be such a good communicator to your parents. But you were exposed to a lot, a lot of different careers and industries and lifestyles and backgrounds and all sorts of things growing up. So how did that influence how you thought about your life, where you wanted to go? Any major influencers from that phase? Yeah, thank you so much. Oh, this is so fun to talk about. You know, I grew up on the south side of Chicago. Uh, my family uh, didn't have a lot of means. Uh, in fact, my dad was one of the first ones in the family to go to college under the GI Bill. He was a Vietnam uh, War veteran. My grandfather, who is still alive today, he's amazing, 100 years old, lives oh on gosh. his own in the South Side. Oh, my gosh. Um, you know, and he served in World War II and, you know, was a machinist and can, like, fix and do anything, right? Worked a little bit in the steel industry on the South Side. So, you know, I was exposed at a fairly young age that, you know, working with your hands, like working in the trades, you know, is, is honorable, um, yeah. You know, and sometimes I think we lose that. Right. And now here I'm doing tech. Right. And like, what's the latest and greatest in advanced manufacturing? But, you know, it all comes from kind of those basics at the beginning. And I just have an innate, um, I guess, bias, if you will, that I'm just so proud of, you know, the work people do. And oftentimes the work people do with their hands, you know, and, yeah. and that type of labor, it's it's an artist. Like when I, I call my welders and fitters when I used to build boats and streetcars and wave energy devices, like the people that build those, they're artists, they're artists in their own right. Um, and so that really influenced me growing up. So my dad, think about it, first one to go to college, right? And he ended up getting his MBA. You know, I think he washed dishes part of the time and stuff and like, you know, but he got his MBA. And my mother, um, who's amazing, she went back in her 50s and got a master's in counseling. She's always, and she was a teacher, a school teacher, English teacher. So hopefully I have good grammar. If she's listening to this, she's going to critique us, just so you know. Um, <laughs> but they gave me that passion for education and growth and challenge yourself and, you know, continue to try to move up and, and better yourself in so many different ways, but mainly in, in this case through education. 
Yeah. It seems like the last generation or two, the trades got de-emphasized. There was all this emphasis on getting a four-year degree. Like that's that was the path. And I feel like anecdotally we're seeing it shift just with you know how unaffordable higher ed is for so many people and just what we're seeing in terms of what's actually needed to get some of these tech jobs. And then in Chicago, particular, what we're doing, just phenomenal things around the apprentice network and all of that. But um, I'm curious, do you predict a shift back to the trades? Um, I do. I'll tell you, though, my real prediction, you know, yeah. live hot prediction, you know, for your podcast. <laughs> uh, I love doing predictions. Again, because also I don't mind if I'm wrong, <laughs> because right. like when you do what I do, like lots of things will fail. Lots of things will make mistakes. But let's put it out there. I think what's changing is um, continuous learning. So, you know, whether mm-hmm. it's in the trades, whether you're like it's it's incredible you know, these young people, they're taking in, think about it, so much information and data and like the ability to kind of go cross cutting from jobs. So maybe you're welding one day, right? Maybe you're doing um, a different function the next day. Maybe it's more of design work, you know, and you're on a CAD CAM function. You know, I really think um, chunks of learning are going to happen at a much faster speed and and a lot more rapidly. So virtual training centers. And I'm really excited about the future of education because, you know, even for me, I tell this to people all the time, you know this, Margaret, better than anyone, the world is changing so fast. There is no way you're, you know, my MBA of 20, 30, whatever plus years ago, you know, there's no way that that's like up to date, right? right? (laughs) Like what's happening today. You and I never thought we'd be CEOs in a pandemic and like leading this. Where's the training for that, right? I somehow I missed out on that. Let me. So it's just, um, I think, really important that we think about learning as a continuous journey, and that's from everyone in the trades up to CEOs, right? Yeah. Um, I heard someone say once, because, you know, this is part of your world, that uh, you've seen one pandemic, you've seen one pandemic, and that's been the problem with even just AI and predictive modeling. Like, there are no models for any of this. It's been very <laughs> difficult for people who, like, relied on data, past trends, predicting future outcomes, and that all went out the window. You are Which so means you right. have to rely on great instincts like you have and that you've developed throughout your career. What's the best advice your parents gave you growing up? Uh, the best advice my parents gave me, um, I, I think, was be brave. Um, you know, be brave and don't be uh, afraid to fail. Don't let anyone tell you no. And, you know, especially as women, you know, that's very empowering, right? Like, you know, I knew at an early age, like I could do anything I wanted to do. That's like, so incredible. That's, yeah. I give them a and lot you of have. <laughs> Yeah. So uh, started up on the South Side of Chicago, went to college after graduation, picked up, moved to Oregon in a U-Haul, didn't have a job. <laughs> Let's talk about that because that was such a profound part of your journey, your time in Oregon. And I know you you still have a house there, so you're still technically an Oregonian. But what was going through your mind? Why did you head to Oregon? What was happening? Yeah, it's so funny. So um, I graduated with my MBA early um, before I was 21. And I you know, honestly didn't have enough experience. I mean, I had experience, meaning my first job, I shoveled manure out of my horse's stable because my parents said if I wanted to own a horse, I had to like, you know, take care of it and feed it and clean up after it. So I always count that as my first job in my teens. 
Um, but I actually graduated right with my MBA from Miami University out of Oxford, Ohio, not the other Miami, my friends. And, you know, I moved to Chicago. I was in Wrigleyville, like my first, like I shared this flat. Oh my gosh, there were like cockroaches and like yeah. The great news is I could walk to the Cubs game, even though, remember, I grew up as a Sox fan. So I am uh-huh. dual. I love Sox and Cubs. Um, okay. But I lived in Wrigleyville for a while and I was working away. And, you know, I had a goal. You'll, you'll love this. I don't know if I told you this before. I had a goal that I wanted to visit all 50 states. So just like I have a goal, I wanted to go to, you know, 100 countries. And I'm working my way through that. I wanted to go to 50, all 50, 50, well, and, and the territories. I'll even add those in. And so I actually had never been to Oregon or Washington. You know, I've been actually to, at that point, I think 46 states. So I had very few left. And so I was taking a a summer, you know, kind of two week vacation. And I went one week to Seattle and one week to Portland. And I basically fell in love. I think because of a, you know, kind of great Midwest girl, I'm like, whoa, Mm -hmm. like I can drive one hour and I'm in the mountains. I learned to snowboard. I can drive like one hour and there's an ocean. <laughs> like, yeah. So having mountains and ocean, like was, you know, waterfalls and like I learned to whitewater kayak. I used to be a huge whitewater kayaker. It was like my mind was kind of <laughs> yeah. so you know, young girl in her 20s. I was like, I knew one person in the state of Oregon. So my family thought I was crazy. My poor like grandparents and parents, they were like, what? And again, this gives you the credit of do what you want. Like, think about it. You know, they have their daughter and they're all excited. She's back, you know, back in the fold and we're in Chicago. And I was like, I'm moving to Oregon. I had one girlfriend. I'm like, come, please drive with me. I have two cats and like a U-Haul full of some stuff. And I just moved. I didn't know anyone, no jobs, no contacts. And I just like, I fell in love with it. And as you said, I still have a house there. I plan still on spending time there. I love it. It's an incredible city and state. Um, Just like I absolutely love and adore Chicago. Yeah. Well, you did definitely have some career defining moments there. So hit the highlights for us before we get to uh, what happened when you left Oregon. But just tell us a little bit, because you had some two companies, more than that though, but that really helped define you and kind of set you on your next path. Yeah, and I, I love to give credit to a lot of people here, but you know, I'm going to specifically call it actually a couple men um, that really helped me because we need these male allies. I would never have succeeded, you know, without them. So, young woman in her 20s, you know, didn't know I loved manufacturing. Started work at Oregon Ironworks, you know, which is big metal. We build bridges and boats, and you know, it was. I started out there as a temp. You know, I hadn't even like I was just starting to put my resume out when I got there um, and started there as a temp. Long story short, I became eventually the president. <laughs> I was vice president of Oregon, <laughs> and then I became the president of United Streetcar, which was a the first manufacturer of modern streetcars in the U.S. in 60 years. So we did reshoring before reshoring was kind of the cool, you know, title because most yeah. of it was done in Europe and Asia. Um, so really proud. We have some streetcars running around D.C. and Portland and uh, Tulsa. Um, so that was great, but I, I would have never, there were no women, none, right. like in manufacturing, heavy metal, it was a union shop, you know, I became friends with all, again, the welders and the fitters and the machinists, you know, and I learned that I have a passion for manufacturing. I learned that I like to see things from a drawing, you know, become reality. I want to walk on it. I want to sign my name on like 
if I could weld mm-hmm. a poorly welded part that I would be able to contribute because I'm a terrible welder. Um, you know, like I, I just, I love that creation process and to see it through. So the, it was the CEOs, Terry Arneo and the president, Bob Beal at the time, who actually continued to uplift me. Think about it from a temp. They're promoting me and promoting me and yeah. promoting yeah. me, you know? So yeah, so it was great. I take credit for hopefully doing a good job, but you know, they really saw something um, and they helped me become a CEO of a manufacturing company, honestly, at a pretty young age. Yeah. That's incredible. There is something so fulfilling about that, right? Like you get to see the completed thing, like it's done. We did it, you know, and start over. I think you lose that sometimes in um, the knowledge economy and a lot of corporate jobs, which is why, you know, sometimes we miss the school year where you have a beginning, a middle, an end. You know, you know, you did a good job, project completed, you get a break, you go on to the next one. There's something about that that I still crave. Yeah, I, 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 I love it. I love being on factory floors. I actually like the scent of oil still and like the machinery and I don't know, it just jazzes me up. Like everybody's different, right? But <laughs> I like um, classical my dad, music too. Yes. My dad was a mechanic and I know that, I mean, it's a different smell, but somewhat similar. That same smell of like oil and gas, like whenever I'd walk into the garage, it's just like, <laughs> I loved it. I love that smell. Maybe you could do a line of candles. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder how popular that would be. That's an awesome idea. Hey. Look at you. You're always the entrepreneur. Good job. <laughs> no, I really want to see the Chandra candle line. That's like all these really cool uh, manufacturing scents. That would be really interesting. Okay, so then something really big happens. In 2013, you're appointed by President Barack Obama as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Manufacturing in the Commerce Department. First, what is that process even like for the vast majority of people who have never gone through this? I mean, it's a very teeny, teeny portion of the population that gets selected for things like this. What is that process like? How did that happen? Oh, this is so fun to be able to talk about. Um, It's a crazy process to become a political appointee, which now I know, like being on the other side. But wow, I had no idea. And, And, you know, just to set the stage... I got a call. I'm like happily working away. I'm like the CEO of United Streetcar. You know, I get a call in the office, you know, from uh, the White House. You know, literally like my search, like, oh, the White House is on the line. (laughs) I thought I was being punked. Like I literally thought, you know, because I did a variety of stuff. I love politics. And I was like, oh, like who is punking me? Like this is not actually, you know, the White House on the phone. And then I get this guy, you know, and he's like, hello, Miss Brown. He's very, very stern. And he's like, um, you know, I'm calling from the White House, the presidential personnel office. And I was like, what? And, you know, your mind's racing. And I'm like, okay, I mean, I'm still kind of thinking that someone's teasing me. But I was like, well, you know, I don't want to make a mistake if I'm wrong. Yeah, right. <laughs> call it out. And so I was like, huh. And then I was like, oh, maybe someone's calling me for a reference. Like, I love to support oh, other, uh-huh. you know, minorities. So I, I literally thought like, oh, they're calling me. Like, one of my friends must be up for something. Like, then I was like, all happy. I'm like sitting back like, okay, great. I'm happy to give a reference. Like, I wonder who it's for, right? Yeah. And then they're like, so we want to know if you're interested in a job. And you would love, all my answers were just questions. Like, what job? I mean, I, I think it, when I look back, I think I kind of sounded like an idiot because I was so confused. I'd be like, what job? And he's like, a job in manufacturing. I'm like, in manufacturing? He's like, yes. And I'm like, okay. Like, so you're calling me for a job. (laughs) I'm a CEO of a manufacturing firm. What kind of job in manufacturing do I want? 
and out of the blue, like it'd be different yeah. if someone had prepped me, right? Or given me a yeah. little bit of it. I was like, right. what the heck is this? This is my lesson to everyone listening. This is what happens when you get that call. I'm very practical. I like to give practical advice. When you get some call out of the blue that says, you know, would you be interested in a job in the administration? You know, what does it do? I don't know. I just can tell you it's related to manufacturing. I was like, okay, uh, yes, I'm interested. Like I literally knew not, I don't even know the job title. <laughs> it's like, right. you know, they're calling me up and I was like, and the guy was like, well, I can't really tell you anymore because what we're doing now. So this goes to your question of process. He's like, I'm calling you right now just to see, you know, if you're interested because the vetting process is long and costly. So, you know, if you're not interested, I think they just do these quick calls to kind of weed out. Like, you know, if you're mm -hmm. like, no, or I don't want to take a pay cut because in general, these things, they're regulated by law. You know how much our Congress people make and even the president makes. It's not as much as in the private sector. So I think they like to just try to see. So I really didn't know anything about anything, but I was like, all right, like, yeah, put my name in the hat. Like, I'm, I'm interested. I love manufacturing. I feel passionate about that. My goodness, if a president is calling you to serve, you know, and I mean, you need to listen to that. And it was right. you know, a huge honor. Like, don't get me wrong. This is, I just was still in shock, I think, this yeah. whole time. And um, I was like, okay, I knew that in the worst case, this is what I tell everyone, if I didn't like it, when I got more details, you know, I could bow out or I would right. say no. So why not try for it? I had no, I thought I was going to retire at like Oregon Arch United Streetcar. Like I love, it was my family. I'd been there almost 20 years. So like, I love those people. I knew everyone. I was great at what I did, like top of the game. I could do anything. And then like, here you get this call out of the blue. You want to come to DC. You want to move across country. You want to do something. I don't even know what I was doing. You want to go from a more entrepreneurial, like medium sized business doing great work to a huge bureaucracy. Like I was like, whoa, but I just, I had to say yes. Like my inner, like quick thinking, you know, yeah. just said, do it, say yes. And so I did. And then the whole next of the process started. <laughs> How long did it take? Um, well, I was super fast tracked um, because the job had been empty for a while. So when I left Oregon Ironworks, I didn't even take a, a week to move across country and start the new job. But the process, that's a good question on how many, less than a year, you know, so it was definitely less than a year, maybe like yeah, six but still, months. That's a long time. It is like, and you can't tell anyone. So I didn't tell anyone I work with, right? You know, because you don't know. I didn't even know that there was an interview process, which turns out there was, you know, so they do all this background, you know, you have to eventually, well, certain jobs, you need like top secret clearances, you have to go through and you'll love this. This is my favorite story, which I can share now. In terms of vetting, I, I already had because Oregon Ironworks did classified work. So I already had a top secret clearance, which means your finances are good, all that mm -hmm. basic stuff they dig into. And, you know, it's a lot, but, but I already had that. So that was easy. The difference when you're a political appointee, it isn't just about you've committed no crimes, you have no financial issues and problems. It's about your character. Um, and so probably a good thing. I think Margaret, you and I talked about this before. Probably a good thing there wasn't Facebook and other things when I was oh, I a know. lot younger. Thank God. Right. Um, right. Because like now I just look at what happens and I don't know how anyone gets through a vetting process. But basically one of the like one of the questions, I'll give you a sample. I can't tell you everything, but one of the samples would be, <clears throat> have you ever written anything negative about any president? And it's like, I mean, so it's nothing to do with legal and it's nothing to do with financial, yeah, right? right? right. Can you imagine? I was like a political science like major too. I'm like, oh, I wrote a lot of negative things about a lot of presidents. <laughs> 
I was oh my like, gosh. Thinking about this like highly conflicted political climate right now between the last, you know, administration, this administration, I don't know how anyone could get through that. Oh, I agree. I, I don't know. Well, and I, yeah, I'm a little so biased different. because I think the, the vetting process wasn't followed as stringently and as strictly as it used to be. I think a lot yeah. of people are temporary positions and um, yeah. not going through the same process. This is, you know, years ago now, right? This process yeah. was years ago. So I do think it's changed a lot, but I don't know how anyone would either. I mean, I feel I'm a pretty good person, but I will tell you, I was actually traveling. I was in Africa and I, and the the security people were interviewing me and like some of the questions they asked, I was just like, wow, like I'm not going to get this job. You know, like um, there's, they, they talk, even when you get scared, they talk to your neighbors, like are there wine bottles outside the house and the recycling are there? And I used to throw these great wine tasting parties. I throw a great party and you know, there'd be like 40 bottles of wine. We're tasting yeah. blind tasting. Everybody right. brings a bottle and you know, right, right. And so, you know, you can just imagine like it's little things like that, that, you know, I'm like, wow, but I don't think they do a lot of that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess good for the people now. Like, but um, it was a process and then you interview and, there were times in the process I thought, you know, one, do I really want this? Because it's such a radical change. I mean, you could not yeah. get a bigger change, right, than this. Moving across country, small to big, all, all these things. And being in the eye of the public all the time when you're a political yeah. appointee. Um, but obviously, the end story is I made the choice. I got it. I interviewed. I got the job. And... Yeah, even though this was such a huge change, like accepting this job in the Obama administration, you know, it was such an honor, like, and I have such pride, you know, that that I did that. It was such a hard job, honestly, yeah. like it was so much work and I learned so much. I can't even describe when people say drinking from the fire hose, like, yeah. you know, I'm traveling the world. I'm in a different country every every month. I'm arguing trade issues with in China, you know, in wow. Beijing with the Chinese. I'm going to help open the Paris Air Show. You know, it was just and you're you're never off. I mean, like I traveled on the weekends to get in time to start work on a Sunday evening in Beijing when I was on, you know, a 15-hour direct flight, you know, from Dulles. Like it was so much work. But I learned so much. And I am incredibly, it's just like you said, there's very few people that get to serve their country in this way. And, um, you know, it was a great honor to work for Obama. I, I admire and respect him. And I loved the work we did, which was really to promote U.S. manufacturing. Yeah. You know, my passion, like who wouldn't love that? I yeah. got to be a worldwide advocate, you know, for the United States. And the great thing the federal government brings you is scale. I mean, the little things that we fixed affect tens of thousands of U.S. companies. So that's what I really learned was, you know, the importance of scale and policy and how you can make minor tweaks and what a great difference that has. I will yeah. add though, Margaret, I also learned some things not to do. Mm -hmm. There are some things in a bureaucracy, um, like even in those days, I remember like people following me around, like even to bathrooms and stuff to get signatures on documents. You know, you need 27 signatures to get your travel orders. They never would get approved until like the day before you're leaving. You're in the back of the bus, middle seat. Really. It was not glamorous. Let me tell the people, it was not a glamorous. It was work. Like there's a lot of bureaucratic stuff that drove me crazy. And I kept having to remind myself 
the federal government is a huge ship. It's designed to turn slowly. We don't have major, you know, and we're trying, well, we have lately, but in general, we don't have major swings of things. And so, you know, the negative is I'm a doer. I like stuff done, you know, yeah. faster. And wow, did I learn patience? Not happily, I might add, but um, <laughs> I, I think I did gain a lot more patience in this yeah. job. That's really nice that you were able yeah. to have that experience. I know. My mom I always said patience. patience I need to learn more of, so, you know. I know. I don't have it either. It's like, yeah. all right, what's next? What's next? What's, you know, let's go. Let's keep, let's keep evolving, keep changing, keep, you know, I love the scrappiness uh, of exactly. smaller organizations and just be able to do things. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor, Sure. Audio equipment for the Executives Exchange podcast is provided by Sure Incorporated. When your team is depending on you for information and motivation, you can't afford to sound anything less than clear and confident. For nearly 100 years, performers and world leaders have depended on Sure microphones. Whether you're in front of a camera or behind a podium, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. Welcome back. Uh, okay, so this brings us to your current role as CEO of MXD. We might have some people who are not as deeply aware of what that mm-hmm. is as the rest of us. So just tell us a little bit about what MXD is, what it does, and you know, spoiler alert, you actually had a big hand in creating it, you know, and then taking the job later. So share that with people. Sure. Um, yeah. So let's start with the, the quick historical perspective. Um, I used to sit on the U.S. Manufacturing Council also years ago, representing kind of small and medium sized manufacturers. And we looked out across the United States and, you know, even then we manufacturing, you know, there was all this offshoring, there were some things in decline. And so we looked at what is going on in the world? What does the United States need? And one of the areas that we were weak on is public-private partnerships. You know, these, that's this critical bringing together of government, of academia and businesses, you know, all together to kind of solve problems. Um, So I give a lot of credit that these institutes, there's now in DOD funded institutes, there's nine of us um, all across the country. We're the second oldest here at MXD. Used to be called DMDII and UI Labs for some folks in Chicago area might remember that when we were set up um, years ago. And thanks a lot to the federal government and the governors and everyone that helped with that. We're headquartered in Chicago on Goose Island, and each one of these institutes has a different topic. So some are lightweight metals or advanced fabrics. We are, I like to say, besides the fact that we're headquartered in Chicago, you know, the biggest, uh, the best, the broadest, like the reality is we're the digital institute. So MXD stands for Manufacturing Times Digital. Mm-hmm. And what we do is we are here to help the U.S. manufacturing and all the, you know, the supply chain that goes with it, the solution providers, helping to make U.S. companies more globally competitive by leading them along a digital transformation journey, right? So that's where we think the future is. The future is digital and, you know, manufacturers are often behind the times. We're not like the right. financial industry and some of the healthcare sector, right? You know, we're the, whatever it is, 85% plus, maybe 95% of all, you know, the manufacturers are mom and pops, right? And small businesses, like, you know, so we have to help them. We have to help them on this journey, like to stay competitiveness in industry 4.0 and the high tech world. So that's our mission, you know, 
And on top of that, a few years ago, because when you talk about all this data and digitally transforming, then what comes with that? You have to protect your data. So Department of U.S. Department of Defense also named us the National Center for Cybersecurity in Manufacturing. So again, not the finance area, not the general, but very specifically, most people don't realize every factory is full of a million vulnerabilities um, in yeah. terms of cyber. It's just not talked about as much. It's not maybe as sexy sometimes as financial sides, but it's actually a very real problem. Um, so now we have a yeah. cybersecurity mission as well as our digital transformation. So we do everything from artificial intelligence, um, digital twins, blockchain, augmented and virtual reality, uh, supply chain analytics. So in the past, like, I don't know, five plus years, we've put out over $150 million in money into the community to do projects, you know, that we kind of vote on and rack and stack on how can we put seed money in to funding these projects that will help move um, as many companies as we can, right, along this digital thread. Yeah. Well, in supply chain, we just did a program with you on onshoring, reshoring. Uh, how much of this was driven by the pandemic versus this was kind of where things were going to be anyway. I mean, I know everyone knows it was accelerated by the pandemic for sure. And also the war in Eastern Europe, but um, was it eventually going to happen anyway or no? Was this really transformational? You know, I actually, I would say it was going to happen. It was absolutely going to happen anyway. Like exactly as you said, Margaret, it, uh, the pandemic accelerated everything. Um, but, you know, for us, actually, some of the supply chain work, we did this supply chain risk alert. It's a project that takes in all this data and it predicts when there's going to be a problem. So think about weather data, health oh, data. Yeah. And so you it's not about it's knowing that your factory in North Carolina is going to be affected, the odds of a hurricane or something like in advance. And so maybe you should go a different route. Like that's what we're trying to get to, like through a lot of big data and algorithms. And so this is this alert was started before the pandemic. So we were working on this like supply chain risk alert before the pandemic started. So the supply chain issues, people were realizing even then, like there was some minor chip problems. We all know the semiconductor industry issues that are happening around it's affecting every car, every, you know, almost everything we do. Rare earth, you know, like for people that were in the know, these were issues, you know, before, honestly, yeah. the pandemic. But what I love, I might have to tell us because you know, what I do often isn't the sexiest, let's say, or the most, you know, exciting, you know, when I go to parties and stuff. And once people could not get toilet paper and they wanted to know where their toilet paper is being manufactured and Chandra, when is my shelf going to get refilled with uh -huh. um, sanitizing wipes? Huh, funnily enough, I am like the popular person at the, uh -huh. at the parties, which again, then no longer existed in the pandemic and the virtual right. parties, the virtual happy virtual hours, parties. I guess we'd say. <laughs> but finally, we became popular here. People started to pay a little bit more attention because they're like, wow, manufacturing supply chain ex affects every consumer. You know, they just don't think about it, right? Like, is that top yeah. of mind for you? Where does my toilet paper come from? Did you ever care before? No. Right. No. You know, know, so I feel that's good. Like we feel we're we're more valued these days. And like that's a huge thing, this increase in awareness on how interconnected we are and the importance of supply chains and the importance of manufacturing and local manufacturing in the United States, or you might not be able to get your products when crazy things happen. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You're making me think because about 
I don't know, was it 10 years ago, 20 years ago? I mean, there was this, among some circles, like this social push, this made in America, right? That really became emblematic. There was this very anti-China manufacturing sentiment. I mean, everybody understands it's a global world, right? So, yeah. you know, maybe the nationalism might be, um, I don't I never know if I'd call it slightly muted, but the reality is, I think we're thinking more about it from our terms of our allies, right? Right. So I know, because like we want to be alive, like we want to share with right. some countries, but we don't want other countries to be making our stuff, right? So there still is a made right. in America, made in Europe, you know. Um, so there's still it's still there, like. But I think that's part of more of the issue. Like we need to be part of, you know, Mexico and Canada, for example, like the three countries, you know, together, yeah. you know, we're incredible powerhouses with different resources. Right. Yeah. I, just, I didn't think about that until you just mentioned it now. I'm like, I'm not hearing this like rallying cry. Uh, so what are going to be the parts that are going to be the most challenging to reshore? Oh, wow. Like that's a big question. Um, I mean, right now we're seeing it. Um, the, the biggest things I would say are, you know, the chip shortage, right? And yeah. I think you maybe heard the recent announcement, Intel in Ohio, yep. um, building a big plant there, you know, being dependent on Taiwan as one of the main suppliers has a lot of worries um, for a variety of reasons with China next door. Um, so that is a huge, because they're so um, uh, intensive, right? They're cost billions of dollars to build, to make this isn't necessarily a quick thing. So, and then you need all the supply chain, right? That goes around it. So right. some of these industries, it's actually mind boggling, like how much it really takes to be successful. So that is going to be super hard. I'll, I'll call another company, MP Materials, that's looking at rare earth and minerals, one of the few mines in the United States. Like, these are precious commodities. And if it's all controlled by China or China owning the mines in Africa, you know, again, it's all tied together. You know, that's another area. Like, what are you going to do? Like, you know, how right. do we find different raw materials, different metals, you know, that are needed? And how do we, I, I love sustainability. I, I mean, we need to be recycling every one of these things and every one of these components, yes. like is such yes. a critical piece of manufacturing too, which people don't talk about as much um, for the clean economy, because that's also critical. We need to be reusing every one of these limited resources. And we make it so hard. Like oh, we have had this, we have this laptop that's been sitting here for months because we want to go properly recycle it. And they've shut down the place that was here in like on in Ravenswood. Um, that's gone now. So just like, it's just making it so hard for us. And of course we're going to eventually do it, but I could see the majority of people saying, I'm just going to throw it out. This is, this is way too hard. I don't have time to figure this out. And once I do figure it out, it means I have to drive a half hour to go do something and drive back. And I could see a lot of people just throwing it out. And we need to make this so much easier. Like I, I could not agree more. And there are companies like doing good work, but it needs to be, I also would argue, this is like a great national policy question, right? Can we implement right. some national rules, like rather than it be a patchwork, yeah. some cities do it great and you can drop off your laptop like, yeah. You know, Portland's really good at this, right? They, you can pretty much almost like everything. It's all your food scraps. They have compost, like as part of your picked up at your house, you know, like, I know. you know, that's the way it should be. Right. But I know. Um, this, it's such a quilt across the United States of some doing it well. And, you know, I would argue 90% doing it poorly, yeah. <laughs> like not making it easy for you, you know, the consumer to do the right thing. Right. I will do the right thing. It's just, I know you time. will. 
So it's sitting in my corner. Very good. <laughs> Until I get to it. I'll come pick it up for you. I'm going to take care of it for you. <laughs> like, I'm going to make this happen, woman. <laughs> I'll give you a bottle of bourbon to, to get rid of my laptop Ooh. for me. Oh, I like that. Oh, this is a great deal. <laughs> to a bourbon laptop exchange. <laughs> I love it. Hey, that another would business model, Chandra. I'm just saying there's another business model there. You can somehow Look at you keep trying to give me more work to do. <laughs> So I do want to talk a bit about diversity in tech. It is such a passion point of yours. So thinking back what it was like being a woman in tech when you first started compared to now, give us a scorecard. How much progress have we made? Ooh, we have made progress. That will be my happy uh, soundbite. <laughs> we have made progress, uh, but much more progress to do. I think right now in the tech, I'd probably say we may have gone from a D uh, or enough by really being a hard grader, um, probably up to C plus B minus. Okay. So progress is being made. Uh, yeah. We are certainly not at an A. Um, yeah. But, you know, attention has been focused. You know, I'm just shocked at how much DEI is, is talked about, right? And that, you know, yeah. people even are paying attention to it and corporate boards, you know, are looking at it more, you know, part of ESG, like, so that's really great. Um, the dialogue has increased, I would say, a hundredfold. Now, yeah. but dialogue is one thing, right? Implementation, what am I as a manufacturer? What do I care about? Like, we can talk about things a lot. That's good. That's part of the process. But where are we getting to the real numbers on what's happening from diversity yeah. and equity and how it's, how it's changing in tech? Who's doing it really well? Who do you hold up as a model? Anyone? Mm, that's a great question. MXD. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, thank you. No. No, I, I'm serious. No, I, I will. Yeah. And I will. This is what I can rattle off for you. So I love this. Yeah. This is what I want you to ask, like, any of your future guests. You know, I'm going to put some work back on you. And that's where you guess, like, what is, can they tell you, especially if it's a CEO, the composition of, like, their board and their staff? Right. Can yeah. they tell you? And I will say, yeah, thank you for that. But MXD, we do. I'm a very clear lead by example. Oh, leader yeah, you do. Right now, my board of directors. And remember, guys, it's a manufacturing institute. There's like very difficult to find women, particularly women in leadership. My board, 55 percent of my board of directors are women. Over 50 percent of my senior leadership staff, not just the board level, are women. 45, uh, no, 27% of my board are people of color, you know, because mm -hmm. it's not just about women too. 50% yep. um, of the people of color in my office are in STEM positions, right? Yep. So like I can give you these 40% total of our staff are people of color. Like, so this is amazing. Like you have to, and I also love, I will tell everyone this, please like put, you know, photos too sometimes when you're doing it right. Put photos on your websites and stuff. You can go look at my board of directors and you can see the incredible, you know, women and people of color that are on the board. You can look at our senior leadership team and see, you know, the diversity that's there for some of them. So I, I just, you can't fix it unless you measure it. You and I talk about time, it's data, yep. right? So first yep. measure it and then set your targets, right? And then figure out how close you can get to that. So the other thing I will have to say, you know, just personally that warms my heart so much 
is we do all of our team presents on a team meeting, um, like for 10 minutes, just a little bit about their personal background, where they came from, you know, from every one of our employees does this. And we ask them, if you were president or CEO for a day, what would you do? And we ask them, why did you come to MXD? And without question, one of the number one reasons we think of how hard it is to get talent right now, right? Especially yep. tech talent. It's insane. One of the number one reasons they put down is diversity. Like they are coming here because they know we're going to welcome you if you're LGBTQ. We are going to make it a safe, wonderful space, you know, for uh, a black woman to come. And so that's what these and some of some, a lot of them are white males too. like not, that, that will also say they have come here for a diverse, you know, to come work in a place that's mission focused with a big emphasis on diversity. Yeah. So that's really practically telling people this is a way that, you know, you can keep continuing to secure really awesome talent. I did not think that would be the answer, honestly. Like, and I don't know if you do, like, I, I never thought that would be like such a recruitment tool, but it yeah. is now, especially in the younger generations. Yeah. I mean, you really have, it really is. And you have done a phenomenal job. And uh, whenever you can point to the data, right? Outcomes, recruitment, retention, suddenly everyone's on board, you know, like you could talk about it and why this is important and it matters. But then once you kind of create shareholder or stakeholder value in these ways, I think it gets, people start moving the needle really quick. Although I would say, like, again, one of my passions, I really want to see more work done in, for example, like women on board of directors, like exactly yes. to your point. It kills me. Look, at they did that study of the Fortune 100 and the Fortune 500 and how the ones with greater diversity on their boards, you know, literally had a better outcome. So just like right. simple numbers, like just right. facts, like you can argue about lots of things, but like they just put it all in, measured it. And it amazes me how hard it is still, you know, even for people like me to get on paid boards to like, you know, be a part of that, the biggest, because that's what's setting your tone, right? Like, I love that my board is like 55% female, like, because it does help all throughout the organization, right? Like good leadership will cascade through and that just mm -hmm. becomes adopted as a means. Like it's not a, it's a matter of course, not a matter of, oh, this is unique or we're going to have to, you know, go outside the bounds. Th those are the accepted bounds. So I really do think that's another area that needs a lot of work. Yeah, I know. It really does. Again, great progress has been made because we were starting from zero, but exactly. you know, when, when you're starting it enough. You exactly. <laughs> I mean, a B minus is a pretty big jump. Like, no, so it is. kudos given, you know. It is. It's pretty good. So you really are like the quintessential trisector athlete. I mean, this is talked about a lot, right? That they have this unbelievable ability, this cross-sector experience to collaborate and solve and uh, think about problems in ways that others don't. It is really hard for most people to get that tri-sector experience. I mean, to be able to go from like entrepreneurial, private sector, government, nonprofit, so how do people get this uh, view of the world, this way of thinking without having to go serve in government, which is not available to most people? I'm just curious because the government, business, private, public partnerships, civil society, everyone coming together, creating these solutions. How do we get everyone to have a taste of this, uh, get experience with this, understand how to be this kind of thinker? So that is probably the hardest question someone has asked me in a very long time. Thank you for, you know, um, <laughs> because 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, great job. You are you are a tough interviewer. Okay, but I think I have an answer um, because that is really hard. Like, how are you telling people to become like yeah a trifecta or learn all these different things? And even now, we can just take all the data that's coming at you. There's so much. Like, how many books can you read? How many different self help? Yeah. How many other? I mean, like, right? We're overwhelmed. Yeah. Like. So what I say is the way that you can get, you know, that. So the experience that I've had, for example, what's been most important and helpful to me personally in my career is, and this is the old school term that we use, maybe this will date me, and it was called like, you know, your kitchen cabinet. Yep. It's called this group of people because you can't do it all yourself. And this goes back to my huge emphasis on diversity. And this includes, you know, like I said, the like white men at the table, you know, that's the fact that you have artists, you know, at the table. This is one of my favorite things, you know, just to give kudos to the executive club too. That's exactly what you're doing. You're bringing together and sometimes in subsets, you know, groups of people that can become friends and find mentors and make you think outside your box, right? Everybody now is like siloed and we we filter our data for what we want, you know, mm-hmm. but the reality is if you want this broad base, the trifecta of experience, you know, you don't have to serve in the government, but do you know some people in the government? Do you know like that you could sit and chat with me about here's some of the problems, here's some of the good and the bad, this is how policy works, this is, you know, like if you have that person in your circle, you don't necessarily have to do that experience yourself, right? But I think, you know, and gosh, this is where the pandemic helped and hindered, you know, sometimes it allows you to be in touch with people that you wouldn't because they're so far away, or you can have more international, for example, in your kitchen cabinet with the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But there's also something to be said about in person and that ability to communicate and go back and forth a lot better than on a yeah. more scripted teams format. So, yeah. um, you know, it's been a good and a bad thing, but that's what I would tell you. Nobody can learn all the data. Nobody can read the th- 10,000 books. I mean, I'm an avid right. reader. That's my hobby. I read all the time, read tons of stuff and not just like, like self help or other things. Like I tease people. I'm like, I read a lot of fantasy. Like, Oh, I mean, give me a great book about dragons and elves. And, you know, like I'm all in because sometimes you just need to escape. Like it can't all be about how am I fixing my, how am I changing? Like I read so much tech stuff and what's happening in AI and quantum computing. Like, you know what? Sometimes like people, it's okay to like go into a fantasy world and like, did you watch wheel of time? Yes. Oh, yes. I read all the books like that. I love Wheel of Time. And, you know, I mean, Lord of the Rings, like classics. Who doesn't mean if you don't watch the movies, they're insane. Like, so, oh, yeah, I'm a huge fantasy fan. Yeah. I did not read all the Wheel of Time books, but I have gotten into it. There's a lot. I know. It's like 20? Yeah. Something? 21? There's a lot. And you read them all. That's incredible. But if I was going to have, you know, I was going to ask you this, like, if you could have be any, you know, fantasy um, kind of person or what would elf. you want to do? Elf. An elf. Yeah. yeah. See, you would be a Definitely. great elf. I know. I want to be I want to be a dragon rider. Oh, well, that's pretty badass. Yeah. <laughs> if we could just throw out there what we're going to do in our future careers. <laughs> you, you know, you almost have the hair to be like a mother of dragons. Like you can. Yes. 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 Yeah, can, Although she was bad in the end, voice. so I don't want to have that same death of. Yes. That's true. <laughs> we digress. <laughs> yes, we do. So um, it is public at the time of this recording, so everyone knows that you are going to be retiring from this role. We've been talking about this for a while, and I know you have some personal reasons for retiring, but that, you know, this might have been the time anyway. You know, we've talked about how long people should be staying in these roles and, you know, 
knowing when it's time to go and not having to hold on. And so how do you know? How do you know when it's maybe time to start thinking about what's next? Not holding on to the the role and the power, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really hard. And I think it is, you know, there's somewhat of an individual journey, but I'll happily share my learnings in that, um, the biggest thing for me, you know, when I was like 20 years almost at the same place and I went to DC, that change, like I didn't realize uh, looking back how hidebound I was. Like you don't know what you don't know. Like you're busy working away. We've got so much to do and we're doing a great job. Let's say you're good at your job. I mean, I found really yeah. good at what I do and we keep doing it um, and we don't like ever step back, right? You don't ever take the time. And that shakeup, I mean, that probably would have never happened except the White House called me. So this is a crazy thing. White House calls, I go and have this huge The change. literal deus ex machina just came <laughs> exactly. you out. And, you know. Exactly. And even when I came back to Chicago for this job to run MXD, a nonprofit, you know, was kind of out of the blue and how I got the call. I was in Oregon at the time. So, you know, one, you have to be open to other opportunities. If you're happily working at your job and you're not even listening or paying attention to anything outside their that's going to be a problem. Yep. And two, it really freed me um, after I did the kind of three-year stint um, in D.C. I realized that you will gain a lot of great stuff in a three to five year almost, you know, period. Yeah. And so at least for me. And again, yeah. so I, I was able to really, you know, you can become excel in what you do, become an expert, get your team together as a leader, right? Have things, you know, running in a, like I call it, I wanted MXD running like a well-oiled machine. And it is running like a well-oiled machine. Like it's great. At, you know, we've grown a huge amount, tons more people, tons more money. Like everything is great, you know. Um, and so that's when it's time, you know, to like, you need to hand it off to the next person to take it to a different level because all of us have different strengths. And so I, I learned a lot about, I, like I said, I didn't realize how hidebound I was until you leave a job and you start learning new things. Remember what I said, continuous learning. Are you doing yeah. it? Job change is one big way that you are going to shake yeah. it up sometimes for the bad. I mean, I get it. Not all jobs are like a better move, but I guarantee you, you will learn and you will change yeah. things up and that will make you a better, more well-rounded person. Yep. Every time I have grown the most is when I've been thrown into the deep end and just exactly. like a sink or swim. And it is painful and scary and terrifying. And, but I've learned the most and grown the most in all those experiences. Um, I think that's really scary for a lot of people. It's super like scary. And I, and I want to call out you and I, I mean, I had this great conversation at um, the exec club event uh, that you and I were at recently. Mm -hmm. And it was amazing. Like one of the things for women in particular, and again, I don't mind sharing this. Yeah, this is my first kind of public uh, podcast since I've been public about my retirement. But even for me, so someone who knew that like, yeah, everybody's time, like a three to five year stint is good time to step down, let other people come in, continue to take things. Leaders are different times. You get the right leader at a different time and place. Um, but I also have some health issues. I have a very rare bone disease. And I can't tell you now how many women, even there, like I've talked to that, what caused them to make some major changes are, you know, personal illness uh, yeah. themselves, of their families, of their parents, of their kids, yep. you know, and 
one of the things I want to do is hopefully empower people to be able to take some breaks and, and think about development. It shouldn't have to be an injury, right? Or it shouldn't have to be a pandemic and someone dying that causes right. you to rethink, you know, what is my purpose and how am I best contributing to myself as well as to the society and community I live in? I know. That's like another corollary to that question is how do you get people this type of experience and insight and perspective without them having to live it? And I just don't know what the answer is. You know, now that we're talking, the answer may be in VR, in virtual reality. You know, there are those really cool studies coming out of Stanford that through a VR experience, they are able to induce empathy in a way far more powerful than like reading something, talking to someone, because you are changing your brain. You are having this lived experience in VR and you're, you're, you're actually literally experiencing it and they are coming out with more empathy for others than using other modalities. Maybe there's something there. No, I think that's that's like a fantastic like I, we haven't even touched the surface of what's going to happen in augmented and virtual reality. And I know how that's going to change the world. I, I still really I'm, I'm still voting for like teleporters, you know, to transport <laughs> me to, you know, different places. Like I can't wait for that time. But people are saying like, well, that's going to be your VR. I'm going to go to Venice and my yeah. you know augmented reality <laughs> time, time, time yeah. travel capsule. Yeah, I know. Seriously. Um. So what are you looking forward to the most in this next chapter? There's so much that you have open and available to you. You know, uh, I, I've been thinking a lot about this. Um, and I, I have to tell you what I am looking for the most is to spend more time um, with people in my yeah. community. Yeah. And I, I know you are, and I are both super aligned on this. Like I say this all the time, and I know it's a, it's a cliche almost now because other people say it too, but, you know, time, it's the greatest gift. And so yes. all of us that know when time is limited and when you really feel that and you know it, you know, we all reprioritize and what is the number one thing that sustains us, that leads old age. It's not that, you know, you are a CEO of companies and, you know, political, but like, it's the fact that I've touched the lives of the people around me. The fact that I have an incredible relationship with my parents and my family, the fact that I have, you know, such an incredible community and I don't get to spend quality time with them. You know, you really yeah. don't. When we work so many hours and so hard, you know, I cannot wait to experience not living with a schedule. I don't wear yeah. a watch now, but I mean, I'm tied to the phone. Like yeah. when I'm retired, like I'm going to take some time, like, you know, I won't have a phone for, you know, maybe two hours in the morning or something. And they're yeah. like, they won't be able to get a hold of me. You know, like I yeah. won't know what time it is. Like I yeah. want to experience you know, life after being so scheduled and so yeah. regimented and in on the public and in the aisle of the time to just, you know, give back. I want to do passion projects, maybe, like I said, some board work, I want to do some writing, yeah. like things I can yeah. do and reflections, you know, that could still mentor people, still help, but in a completely different way. So I am most looking forward to traveling and just spending, you know, maybe at people's houses and be like, Margaret, I'm going to come stay with you for a week. Like, I just want to hang out day to day life, yes. you know, and see what people like, how great is no, that? No, I want to come stay with you. You have much cooler houses. My house yeah, is, you know. Yeah, Costa Rica. Everybody's invited to Costa Rica. <laughs> so that's what I want. I want like great friends and women and people to come to Costa Rica, for example, and like hang out on a beach and meditate and do yoga and just like take care of ourselves, yeah. you know, as well as being intellectually stimulated by the incredible conversations that you're going to have naturally. Yeah. 
Well, you have earned it, Chandra. You really have. I am just so happy for you. I know that we're going to see a lot from you in this next phase. Just it'll look a little different. Mm-hmm. Um, any parting words that you have for the Chicago business community? Uh, yeah, I do. The parting words, it's funny because um, it just happened today. I, you know, I'm a girl from the south side of Chicago, right? Grew up, like didn't have a lot of money. Today, you know, I got to do this incredible podcast with you, you know, a friend of mine with a great organization. Earlier today, I was on stage with um, the mayor of Chicago, two U.S. senators, uh, Senator Durbin, Senator Duckworth, um, major generals, the governor, and I, like speaking, right, about, you know, the tech community here in Chicago and like some great announcements and like, if I would have ever thought here would be this, you know, girl growing up and she's going to be on stage with these dignitaries and sharing a message like the importance of manufacturing and innovation and being so proud of, you know, where we come from. Like, that's what I wanted to want to tell the business community here. Like, it's an amazing city. There is an amazing ecosystem. I've never been somewhere where everyone really does try to help each other so much. It's the Midwest ethos. It's the Chicago way. And I just couldn't be more proud. So, you know, thank you for having me. And thank you for letting me share um, a little bit of insights, you know, with your whole community. Well, thank you. We are proud of you. Thank you for your tremendous service over these years. You have given so much. I'm so glad you have some time to give back to yourself. And I know we will be talking soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sandra. That's all for today's episode of the Executives Exchange, sponsored by Shure Incorporated. Thanks for listening. If you have Chicago speakers you think we should cover, please send us an email at media at executivesclub.org. The Executives Exchange is a production of the Executives Club of Chicago. Audio equipment for the Executives Club podcast is provided by Shure. Whether you're making a point or making history, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. It's written by me, Margaret Mueller, Produced by Eva Pinar. Research and support from the staff of the Executives Club of Chicago. We appreciate you subscribing and reviewing the show from wherever you listen. Feel free to follow the club on Twitter at Exec Club and on LinkedIn. If you have more questions or are interested about becoming a member at the Executives Club of Chicago, check us out on the web at executivesclub.org.